Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of infield recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up, down, and across the organisation? In this episode, Mark talks with Mark Kingsley in New York's Bryant Park. They explore how small and large creative shops engage with the board and the opportunity for some of the smallest to work with directly with the largest and how larger creative teams navigate enterprises. Uh, my name is Mark Kingsley. I was trained as a graphic designer. I have been in a lot of different situations and I've had my own gig and I've also worked for the man. Uh, some of the men that I've worked for are Ogilvy. I was at the brand innovation group there for a while and I was at Landor where I was a global creative lead on the city accounts, which was a great pro- a great job. Got to wear suits, travel the world and talk about typography. You got paid to get rid of four letters. Was that no, it? No, 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 no. That, you that, that stage, was before me. That was before you. It was afterwards. <laughs> because imagine saying, okay, so the brand's city bank and we're going to charge you a lot of money to call it city uh that's more of a holding company issue that, that was a brand architecture issue uh city's the holding company and city was the um the large corporate uh banker but city bank is the retail so it's uh it, I, I know it's a little cloudy and they use different colors and they have a whole different series of identity systems uh, within but uh that was part of the uh the, the octopus that i had to wrestle with there and then after that, uh, I started a company called Melcontent, which is a small, uh, I call it a lab, a creative lab, uh, because I do both design and strategy. I will do music. I will do lectures. I will design things that don't exist. <laughs> have you have you got beakers and a white jacket and pipettes? Uh, is it that type of lab? Uh, it's a different kind of lab. Okay, it's up right. in the head. Okay, right. Okay, so so it's a it's a lab of ideas, right, exactly. Rather than a lab of chemistry, exactly. Okay. And then I left that for a little bit, and I spent a couple of years as the uh, executive strategy director at Collins, which is uh, right now the the hot design studio in New York City. Actually, hot is the word. You know, I'm sure they they should have a flaming logo. They're that hot. Uh, if it was 1994, yes, uh, but <laughs> probably not. Uh, right now, it's you have to be. How do you know you're hot? You have to act cool. So a lot of cool kids. So I left there uh, about ten months ago, and I've gone back into malcontents, and uh, I'm firing that up again. And it's uh, it's kind of interesting to. Um, kind of see the momentum of things like you have career momentum where you're working for the man and then you have uh, career momentum where you have your own gig and I've had both so that's that's what intrigues me about mm-hmm. this conversation we're going to have because mm-hmm. when you're working for a let's call them an elephant mm-hmm. rather than working for a mouse mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We know elephants like to date elephants they don't particularly you know go with the whole elephants and mice they don't go well together doesn't mean the capacity isn't there. So there's some hurdles and barriers that you have to get over because you're a much smaller entity, which means that you're agile and you've got a lot more liberty to do things. And it's likely the clients that you get, you're going to have a direct line to somebody who's either the checkbook, the equity holder, 
the CEO, you, you know, you, you wind up with this fidelity that you often don't get when you're working for very large organisations. And so that, that intrigues me about the difference of creating evidence, creating tools, creating the outcome that you're being required to do for effectively the boardroom whether it's a boardroom of one or a boardroom of 50. You know, that, that's interesting. I, um, Woody Allen has a saying that 80% of anything is just showing up. Can, can, you, can you use a Woody Allen quote these days? Hell yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought he was in the sin bin and hadn't come out. Yeah, I, he is, but there is, a, there is something valid to that quote uh, about just showing up and playing the game. Uh, and I've used that quote, granted, I've used that quote longer than he's been uh, on the outs. I think we have to find, uh, what I'm going to do is, because we've got a really great, you know, <laughs> female network that are involved with this. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm going to put it out there, help us out with a new quote, which is of a similar vein that comes from an astounding woman. Because I reckon it's so 2020 to be able to actually give a non-Woody Allen quote, but from an, from an inspirational woman. So let's okay. see what we can do. So, uh, well, there's that, that meme that you can use, uh, Abraham Lincoln, if you just quote anything and say Abraham Lincoln, it's, it's valid on the internet. So um, Susan B. Anthony uh, once said that 80% of success is just showing up. <laughs> and what I mean by that, I, I've I found myself in situations where I have to sell ideas and I have to present something and I have to uh, kind of harden myself to criticism and rejection. There is something about that experience that you're able to carry into any situation and you kind of it's like the cock of the walk you kind of walk in and like there's a, there's a there's an assuredness that you have from that from that test that previous those previous tests and so i don't know I, I kind of go into any situation in the same way and that situation is it's more of an attitude and my attitude is one of uh, i try and maintain one of wonder and one of uh, permission absolute polymorphous perversity like yes 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 i mean it's like why not but but if if you were a concert pianist and you Mm -hmm. walked on to a stage and there was a piano Mm -hmm. the audience wants you to play yes so that's kind of a given for the role isn't it but you you have to come in and say i'm meant to be in the room for this reason Mm -hmm. and i'm meant to do the thing that i do Uh which is going to be about being present it's going to be about having the confidence to do anything else is probably going to frighten the audience because they're going to say, have we got the right person? It takes time. Yeah, it takes, it, it takes time. time. I have had moments where people didn't believe me. I have stood in front of heavy-duty people where they've raised one eyebrow and all the power has exited my body, which is the lift of one half lift of one eyebrow. Oh, okay. wow. So I, I've been in that situation. You do it enough, you kind of, you learn how to pivot. You learn how to like kind of dodge the bullets and it's, uh, and it, they're not gonna eat you. You know, they're not gonna kill you. So my, my feeling is like, why the fuck, why not? I have a friend who, uh, a dear friend, who's uh, like a mentor and my brother, uh, his name is Steve Byram. He was the man who designed the first, he art directed the first Beastie Boys record cover. Legendary graphic designer. Uh, represented in iMagazine. They did 10 pages on him one time about 20 years ago. And he's, he's still around, and he's, he's still doing amazing work. And he has this amazing way of approaching every project. He goes, how am I going to fuck this one up? 
and, it, and it, it's liberating to just think that way uh, when you begin something. So I try to inhabit just a small portion of his sensibility. So that's there about having the presence and confidence in the work that you're doing, and and you're being. We used to refer to that as, I've been asked to come and make trouble. I'm not sure it's actually about making trouble. It's actually, you, you know that you're meant to be an agitator, an agent provocateur, mm-hmm. because if they wanted the same, they wouldn't have called you up. Right. So my, ad, my adage there was always, I'm here to take you to somewhere that you can't take yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and these expressions are all, the, all of the same genre, which is, you're the person who's actually there to help them to get to next. I'm not sure we were ever meant to get them to the future. I think we were meant to get them to next because I have no idea what the future is, but I've got a pretty good gamble at what next will be. I agree with you. Uh, Anybody who goes on a stage and talks about the future is tap dancing. Um, But if we can reframe, like, our approaches and reframe uh, the work that we're doing... so. You mentioned dis- disruption, or I'm here to take you somewhere you can't, get, you haven't been before. My models tend to come from philosophy, because I've done a dog's breakfast of reading over the last 30 years since getting out of school, and in the past couple of years, I've made a concerted effort to go to revisit all the stuff that I read badly, and to read it better this time. I- you didn't watch Tootsie and actually understand the, the bigger metaphor in it, did you? Tootsie? Tootsie, the... The film? The, yeah. Sorry, never saw it. Sorry. I'm sure there's... A, no, no, no. Uh, all, my, all my films are either sci-fi or have uh, subtitles. No, so I know what you mean. So, so that idea of actually beginning... There's that New York, you know, it's like the angels of New York are just coming through. Listeners? Is this Mount Sinai? No, it's no, actually it's like McDonald's. Cops. McDonald's closes in five minutes. They're yeah. just getting dinner. So... So I get the idea that you're going back in to see if you can understand the depth behind something that you may have taken a cursory look at. How does that help you when you're trying to then go and interface with C-level and board members? Is that because there's more purpose behind it or because it's more founded in literature and purpose? Or is it actually just that it gives you more context and understanding? Uh, It's more of a historical context of all things. Uh, For example, uh, Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals is a story told from the point of view of a classicist. He was a classicist. It's a story told from his point of view about the history of morality, where we start with, we live in a chaotic universe. All rules and all kind of meaning that we give to how the planets move, how the plants grow, and how the animals behave are all expressions of our own anthropomorphic existence. So we are projecting our own body onto the world, onto that. So if I take that, just that notion, and extend that into the future to how people behave with their smartphones or how people behave when they're shopping, where does where do these morals come from? Where does the thou shall do this, thou shall not do that come from? And kind of picking apart at the source of the, the internal structure behind some of the values that we have, which are our tastes and our approaches and our methods, you may be able to find some white space and kind of go into something new. It's, 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 a, 
admittedly, I, I, I admit, I mean, and I present, I actually, I did it this morning. Like I presented something flowery. I was presenting basically Heidegger, late Heidegger, to some clients. I didn't say Heidegger. I didn't use the word phenomenology. I didn't say we're thrown into the world or anything of that stuff. But there's a sensibility about how that I want them to look at technology, which is, I don't, I mean, I'm not that smart. I'm not as smart as people like Heidegger or the phenomenologists or even Aristotle. I mean, there are thousands of years of, of this thinking, which I'm not smart to do enough to do, but I'm at least I'm bright enough to kind of take from. And so that then becomes a, uh, a f um, like a, a foundation upon which I go, well, if I have a perverse mindset where I'm going to go, well, let's, how can we fuck this up? Well, what's so fucked up about it already? It's because people are behaving in such a way. People are behaving in such a way that they're not thinking about where these values are coming from. And since branding is all about values, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, Nietzsche is like a, a great rich source from which to pull. So I find it interesting, as, we, as I've done this series, that one concept that is really just cut through is the cost to convince versus the cost to serve that that dynamic's changed. And what I mean by that is that the old paradigm of just putting frequency and reach behind an advertising campaign is now more expensive to, a, to create your economic outcomes than just making a great product that serves the customer's unmet need. So then the nature of a brand changes dramatically if the brand serves you and is really useful it's a very different beast than if it's something which is meant to be aspirational and unattainable. That, uh, okay, you're hitting on two things uh, that I love to talk about. Please, uh, that's why we're here to have okay, a conversation. Okay. So first is, when you're talking about the, the cost to convince, there's this notion uh, by uh, an Italian philosopher, uh, Franco Bifo uh, Barardi, Barardi, or I, I forget his name exactly. Uh, it, the notion is one of semi-inflation, where you need more and more signs and symbols and language to get less and less meaning. Right? And that's basically our media landscape. I mean, the signal-to-noise ratio is absolutely unbalanced. Okay, So, yes, we do have a, uh, an instance of uh, semi-inflation. We're in the middle of this. Now, when you're talking about brands, brands are... Now, I define brands differently, I think, than a lot of other people. Brands are not a thing that is sold. I mean, a lot, a lot of people who are in marketing positions or in design positions, look at a brand uh, in an instrumental way. It is a thing that they manipulate, it is a thing that they present. But I see a brand as more an association, right? So Walter Lander had this great line that products are made in a factory, but brands are made in the mind. Beautiful, I mean, this is, this is perfect. So it's an association. The brand doesn't exist. Like I can put something out into the world that doesn't exist unless somebody identifies it as a thing, as a brand and has an association. So brands are nothing but associations. So these associations and this, this kind of effort to kind of build these associations, it, it only points to uh, the level of rigor that we need to approach our work. And it's more than just comms, it's more than strategy, it's more than customer experience. It's all of this together plus more. The idea that a brand is a shortcut it has all that invested meaning behind it, but you know that that holds up. 
I think what I'm what I'm seeing is the weight that people are putting behind what we might have called traditional advertising is probably where that that comment about cost to convince, cost to serve comes in. Because even if you're being served, you still need to know what's the shortcut to the entity, to the values that that, that serving has for you. So I think branding is uh, is still, it has its primacy. It, it's, it's a very useful tool there. It's when branding actually turns into campaigns, when branding turns into convincing devices. But sometimes the convincing can actually be that maybe there's a better way rather than inadequate. And so, so that's the shift that I've seen that's taken place in the, in the last decade is that messaging about inadequacy and there's an amazing solution has gone on the wane. Yes, and, and basically that, that is, uh, that's really uh, the position of brands now. When we had three television networks in, across the United States and we had one mass audience and there was, like a, there was a unity of message, there was a unity of mindset, or more of a unity of mindset, more of a unity of message, right? But now where everyone can, has their own feed and everyone's feed is different according to their own personal algorithms that they've set up whether they knew it or not, we have... And I say this to clients all the time. We have 7.5 billion audiences, different audiences, right? So what happens then is that brands, and this is, I teach at the School of Visual Arts in the Master's in Branding program. So uh, what we tell our students is that brands are no longer a top-down action. They're more of a bottom-up, right? They're, they're, they're driven by consumers. The association. This is the association and the, and the effect of the impact of a brand being, of seeing a brand as an association, you then appreciate how customers drive the effort, right? I'll give you my, my favorite example is uh, that Pepsi ad with Kendall Jenner that Pepsi did in house a couple years ago, okay? They released that ad in April and to great negative reviews. Like, the people are like, what the fuck are you, what is this? It's crap. And it was a little crappy. In fact, I use that, I use that commercial in my class this year. We looked at it every day through different lenses, okay? But what's interesting is that one month, less, sorry, less than one month after that ad was, came out on, was released on the internet, was May Day. And on Union Square in New York City, on May Day, the communists and the anarchists all get together and they have marches and uh, social justice uh, issues spoken about, or the whole thing, right? And there's usually a lineup of anarchists or rebellion with the police. And that year they produced images of the anarchists handing Pepsi cans to the police. <laughs> so they took that brand notion of Pepsi right and perverted it and did something did their own thing with it beautiful absolutely beautiful yeah i've uh, uh, i spent a lot of time with the pepsi team and it it felt to me like it's who let the crazy cousin do do that because it was so different to everything else that pepsi were trying to go deal with but when you've got a family and a range of executives a range of people who have the means to go and create something you're going to wind up with every so often there's a stumble versus everything being perfect and I think that's actually it's a courageous position to have because the courage is that we tried something and nobody's perfect you know even if you it I often go back to tennis as as an example of you know where the design industry fits 
even people who won the last Grand Slam, it's not guaranteed they're going to win the, the next one or even get past the first round. And so I think that, that Pepsi example was, it's a, it's a misplaced step. No, I, I think it's, an, it's, a, it's a larger indicator. Uh, let's use another beverage company. Yeah. Because about the same time, uh, the folks at JKR designed a can for Budweiser, where they took out the word Budweiser and they put in the word America. Right? Highly successful in the United States. Does that make America drunk again? Is that the idea there? What's interesting is that it reson- there was a resonance there because uh, there was something political happening, right? I'm not sure, I'm not fully sure about the, uh, the kind of measurement and the analysis that was done before that was released to the markets. Okay. But uh, that's an instance where they, that company was really in line with the kind of like the political wins. Right. And so when you're talking about, yes, we're marketers and we have families and we have responsibilities, your responsibility needs to expand outward into the larger sociological context. Brands are a sociolinguistic phenomena. We, the, the associations that we have as, uh, with brands, uh, that brands hold in our minds, right? This is basically phenomenology 101. These are ideas that Edmund Husserl uh, offered 100 years ago. This is nothing new. It's just that we substituted the word, uh, 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 Brentano called it a presentation. We substituted the word brand for presentation, right? We still live in an associative world. We don't know what the world is. We don't know what things are. We don't know the essence of things. But we do know the relationships between things and our relationships to the things around us. We know our relationship to the world, right? This is phenomenology 101. It's also the essence of branding. (laughs) And I suppose there, if I I think through that, when you've got so much segmentation in, in a market, it isn't necessarily wrong to mean something significant to a smaller segment of your audience. And something that comes to mind there is at Mardi Gras in, in Sydney, our major our major brands turn in and have a a rainbow activation. One of our banks has a thing called the Gay TM. And it's huge. Fabulous. It is hugely successful. And it's an ATM that has a has a, a, a rainbow facade on it and a little bit of fairy dust. And you go, awesome. But what? isn't isn't that drag? I mean, isn't that uh, kind of corporate drag? But but what it does is it says to the segment of people who believe that they're special, that they have unique needs, we relate to you. And I and I wonder how much we're going to see brands doing a series of activations that are getting down to smaller and smaller segments that resonate and just confuse the rest of us. Uh, potential, uh, yeah, who knows. But, but in, that, in that instance, right, if you're going to drag, put, put kind of literally drag on your ATM, right, why not make the next step and then go to, all right, 
the political context that our bank exists is such that the, the country does not recognize same-sex marriages, but our bank will. And therefore, our bank's policies are going to, see, it's that kind of, it's that kind of step. It's that next, the next, more than just kind of dressing it up and greenwashing or whatever washing, rainbow washing that you want to do. What is the next step that you can do? And it becomes a strategic business decision. And, and what was interesting was the first year it was done, it was thought to be a bit of rainbow washing. Mm -hmm. The second year, it was seen to be there's something to this. I think by the fifth to tenth year, it was you're actually strong and you're behind this. And Australia decided to have a, a, a vote whether we should have same-sex marriage or not. And it was interesting, our, pol our politicians had no, no backbones. But the country, it, it was a landslide just saying, oh, can we get on with this? It did mean that because of some of the ways that public debate takes place, that the people who were the bigots and, uh, and wanted to go back to the 1950s, that they got equal airtime and they got equal, you know, equal say. But then those brands that had actually supported it all the way along kept their support and I think they weren't concerned if they, they probably had factored in the customers who were actually on the, what was now considered the right side of history, were more numerous than the ones that were actually on the wrong side of history. And that's a, that's a really good strategic play. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking the agency that did that of going and explaining that to the board and saying, here's a strategic play. We, we've looked, we've got signals that are saying that there's a movement that's coming along and to go support this group and this community will be, will be good for us. We've had a look at our own staff. We've, we've actually looked at what, what our values are inside the brand. We think this is the right thing to do, but we need you to go and actually give us the support. And the support not for one campaign, but a longitudinal support. And, and then to bring back the metrics into that process to say, we've done this initiative and now we're reporting on it to say how we're getting to the objective. That's where that, that board and brand moment comes together. If that agency did that, they would be geniuses. But I have, I, um, you know, human nature being what it is, I have my doubts. But that is, you've just described, an ide for me, an idealized uh, situation where you, you take this idea, you, you push it, you get, you get immediate feedback, and then if it's positive, you run with it and then go deeper. And, and to, because, like I said, brands are associations, and we're, all we're doing is kind of pushing associations. My understanding was it was somebody who was on the inside, one of the executive suite, who turned around and actually had the courage to go push that forward. So then they had that longitudinal perspective, part of a, a bigger portfolio. If you want this person to do the work, then you're going to have to support the this pet project that they've got. And the pet projects has turned out turned out to be fantastic for everyone. And I and I, you know, seeing we're trying to go focus on how do how does the board actually interact? How do you manage up a concept? I think that's a, a really good example of having an internal sponsor then helps you go be able to manage it up you, you've you've basically created the permission that you were that you gave yourself <laughs> yeah. in a way yeah um, what's interesting uh, you know I, I often when I talk to clients like in the last two three years I find myself saying the same thing which is and it's it, it sounds like a I sound like a hack um, 
Yeah, I sound like a fucking hack uh, consultant when I say this, right? It's like, we're at an, an interesting inflection point in history where, you know, yeah, and like you'll you'll throw some phrase out there, right? You know, like where the, this is intersecting with that, that is colliding against this. And, it's ba- and then you say it's because of technology and changes in society and the fragmentation of the audience and the fragmentation of mindsets and all that bit, right? So everyone's kind of fighting the same thing. Right? And so that creates this really interesting situation where there are opportunities to try and address it. And those opportunities are you, if you do the same thing and that you've been doing for 40, 50 years and you're not seeing any change, well, you need to do something different. So let's do something radically different. Let's, let's kind of look at our work um, differently. Let's look at our work linguistically. It's not about the logo. It's not about the tagline. It's not about the advertising. It's not about comms. There's something else going on here. How can we have, uh, if we're going to be, as a brand, be vulnerable, which is a lot of brands don't want to be vulnerable, right? If we're going to be vulnerable and allow people to speak back to us because people have that power, you know, every, everyone's got a Twitter bomb, you know, that they can throw. So we, we need to, this, this kind of sets up a really interesting new context that we can play in. Right? And it's just, it's all a matter of mindset, I think. So I want to take you back take you back a little bit there, because I, I agree, it's all a matter of mindset. And it's actually, I want to go to a mindset point that, that you mentioned, which was by saying the same thing to the clients that you feel a bit like a hack. And I want to go back to music. One of the reasons that there's choruses and verses is that the chorus is actually where the mass participation is, and the verse is generally where the, the virtuoso, the leader, actually takes over. And I think one of the roles that if we're respecting the board and respecting the, the consultant is that the board needs to be able to hum along to the journey as well. And, and, and so I think some of, the, some of that language is helping them to hum along. And then what they want is that the, the person who's actually reporting to them with expertise is coming out and they're giving the verse because they want to know the chorus and then they want to have the leader actually tell them that, that verse. And, and so it can be maddening if you actually think, why am I singing the verse all the same time? But, it, but there is an operative reason why, why we go in and that we have that behavior of repeating things. And that's all about perception, which is, can you bring people on that journey with you? Well, I like to, I like to use the phrase that history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And, and, and that, I, lo- I love that one, which is about it rhyming. And, and you're thinking, what is the rhyme that we're living in the middle of? Yeah. Because yeah. I, I think particularly in the United States in the last couple of years, uh, the rhyme has become something that a lot of people have been trying to interpret. The unfortunate thing about history is that it's only when we get past it that we actually can really say there's history. Yeah. Uh, I want to I want to kind of push back a little bit on one thing that you said. Where you're I'm, talking- lo- I'm loving this. This, this feels like a five-set of tennis where we're going one-on-one. This yeah. is great. Uh, I want to push back a little bit on something that you said about the virtuoso and the band, that kind of metaphor. Uh, if I'm going to be a proper consultant and help my clients... It's not about me being the star. It's about me offering ways in for my clients to see, to perceive things. And there's nothing more satisfying 
than to see a C, to have a CEO use words and combinations that you've given them and take it and inhabit it as if it is their own. There is there is something immensely deeply satisfying about that because what that means is that you've had an effect on that person's perception and the way in which they see the world and they are going to go forth and run their company with that perception that 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 to me is satisfying that's that's mission accomplished right there to, to do that so it's not about me being the star I want to be the star in the room in the conference room when I'm presenting it because I want people to like me and I want them to be engaged by my hopefully my charisma I hope I have some but uh, in reality and in, in the long term I want to see people using this language and have this language which kind of populate discussions and conversations beyond me. And I suppose that's where, in the boardroom, they're after people to actually have a position so that something would be debated. So I 100% agree with you. You, you. you need to be able to go give them something which is illuminating. It has some substance to it, but it hasn't been communicated if it hasn't been pushed across the table for them to go leverage and use. So I think we're in absolute agreement there. I was interested on on my short flight from Hong Kong to New York, which is only 15 and a half hours. I know that flight very well, actually. (laughs) It's like you're going, that's... That's a ridiculous amount of time to be trying to find something entertainment entertaining on the on the on the no, flight. No, no, no. You got you got to do business class and uh, yeah, try, uh, Singapore Airlines business class. I tell you, that's that's they they got more entertainment than you can throw a stick at. Okay, so I and so I happened to watch a Coldplay a, a Coldplay concert, which I believe was in Brazil. And and I don't I I, I don't mind a music concert to go watch when I'm in the air. What astounded me was the mastery of Coldplay as an enterprise on creating a shared moment where Chris Martin isn't a lead singer, but he is the choir master. And that, that to me is a a phenomenal thing to be able to turn around and say, Mick Jagger was always the lead singer. Bono, the lead singer. Chris Martin has brought everybody with him to have a shared experience down to the point where it's, it, you know, it's this is your part of the song to go do, and he just leads everybody well, in Well, that's also part notes. of, that's a generational shift, right? I mean, you know, people that like to prattle on about millennials and Gen Z and all that kind of stuff, though, I mean, those are my students, right? My students are highly collaborative. I mean, they work on decks at the same time together. Uh, it, it would drive me nuts. I need to, I still believe in the lone genius sitting in a room, writing the thing, presenting it, and then getting feedback and then adapting and all that bit. It's a much slower process. My, my students and people younger than me that I work with, they work collaboratively at the same time. It's it's uh, it's a different mindset, which um, shocks me and astounds me and um, impresses the hell out of me all at the same time. And it's one of those things that just is. Yeah. And therefore, as we're packaging up that communication, it's a matter of meeting the people where they are. Yeah. And unfortunately most boards are not contemporary with their customers 
or that, that's what I'm talking about vulnerability, right? I have this theory of brands uh, that I'm, I have a shitty first draft. And uh, right now, it kind of, it's, it's inspired by Susan Sontag's essay, Against Interpretation, where she says, to interpret a work of art is to kill the work of art. And uh, this is a, an essay that I present to my students. And we, we spend like an evening kind of picking it apart, talking about it, and all that bit. At the very end of that essay, there's a very famous line, that's, which is very cryptic, and no one knows what, it, you know, no one has fully picked it apart, where she says, instead of a hermeneutics of art, we need an erotics of art. Okay? So a hermeneutics is the, you know, the explication, like what does this mean? What does this mean to, within us, within our hermeneutic circle? What is it? How do we interpret this thing, right? What is she talking about when she talks about the erotics of art? So I've been giving this some thought about what is, is there an erotics of brands? And I think there is. And what, to, to use the notion of erotics, it's one of hospitality. Absolutely, this is yours to work with, yours to play with, all that bit, right? That's an erotic situation. But that's also an interesting position for a brand to approach. How can we give our customers full access, full range for them to do as they wish with this thing and for it to still maintain this association in their minds. This is an interesting play. The legal, depart the legal department doesn't want to hear about this, <laughs> this kind of thing. But it's a provocation that I like to use with people because I, I want to shock them first out of this, this kind of ordinary mindset by using a phrase like the erotics of your brand. Like if I go to a bank and talk about the erotics of Chase, <laughs> you know, or Wells Fargo. It is a rather Chase brand, isn't it? <laughs> Chase, yeah, <laughs> perhaps. So, uh, but there's... It's an intriguing kind of thought exercise to do. And from that thought exercise, you could then extrapolate how is this brand going to issue credit cards? How is it going to look at credit? How is it going to look at home finance? How will it look at God knows what, right? It's, it's, an, it's so, I kind of. And, and, and we saw a period particularly around uh, apparel. We saw Jean-Paul Gaultier bring in this erotic nature to to what he was doing, which was delightful. It it surprised people, and it actually helped the brands dramatically. But it was a big play. It was a not something that fitted every brand, but the ones that he did it. And I think we also see uh, Kareem Rashid doing that in the in the built space in hotels, which is how do you how do you create a, a hotel experience which is beyond your imagination but yet accommodating? Well, I want to push it a little further. When I say erotics, I'm not talking about sexuality. I am talking about hospitality. So, uh, yes, Gautier is a very sexy brand and it's an erotic brand in the traditional sense. This is what I'm talking about with the erotics of a brand is like allowing people to say, you know what? This is a whole community that wants to use, that looks at our brand in a certain way. Go for it. Let's let's really let them have it more. Let's let's. How can we do? What can we do to facilitate beyond them just buying it, right? So that that's that's kind of like what, what I uh, I propose to my students when I talk about the erotics of brand. Mark, this has been. I don't think I've had a conversation in this whole series that we've done 
that has actually been a, a cage fight. And, a, and it's been an enjoyable cage fight because the depth of, you know, the meeting of minds, the conversation that we've had, there's a lot for people to unpack in this, and I hope they enjoy listening to it at least once. I probably would suggest that they listen to it twice. Thank you for your time. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, I hope the, uh, to anyone listening, I hope the ambient sound is not too annoying. <laughs> Look, New York is not annoying. It's delightful. That's because of the ambient sound. Well, my hearing's destroyed after living here for 30 years. So, that, I mean, it's really a matter of, of degree, I guess. Well, let's go and get some peace and quiet. Thank you for your time. All right, my pleasure.